Blessings to you today. I hope today finds you well. Today we're going to be taking a look at debits and credits. Debits and credits. We're going to be in the book of Philippians today, and we're going to be talking about an extended analogy that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at the debits and credits of the Christian life. This is a lesson in Christian accounting, if you will. In other words, what has credit with God and what does not? And this is going to be a powerfully important sermon in this series called The Upward Call. The upward call of God is to be like Jesus Christ. It's a phrase, it's based on a phrase that Paul uses uh, shortly following where we are today in the book of Philippians. So the series is focused on the mindset and practices that produce progress in response to this call of God, this upward call in Christ Jesus, as Paul puts it. So we're going to be encouraged to strain forward to what lies ahead and to help others to do the same. So today we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, as he transitions from giving examples of of servant ministry in Timothy and Epaphroditus and the ultimate servant uh, being presented to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw that this servant attitude, this mindset of humility is what really drove uh, Jesus, what characterized his his ministry, and then also the more earthly examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus ministering uh, to the, the needs of Paul, ministering to the needs of the church, pastoring the church in Timothy's case. So in Philippians chapter 3, Paul then uh, kind of turns a conversation and talks about himself, and he, and he has a very stern warning for some false teaching that was common in his day that he warns about many of his letters, and this would be the influence of people called Judaizers. As a little background before we get into the verses, the people that Paul is warning this church about are the people that would come around after the gospel had been preached by Paul or others in various places. And these were people of Jewish heritage. And they would come and say, yeah, believing in Jesus is good, but you also have to add to that a Uh, and obedience to all of the Old Testament law. You have to keep all these feasts, you have to keep all these rites, you have to have non-Jews have to be circumcised. And so they would would come along and say, yes, you do have to have faith in Jesus, but you also have to have these works in order to be saved. And that was the real rub, in order to be saved. They were teaching that the works of the law were meriting at least partially their salvation with God. Paul rails against this teaching as a false teaching, and indeed it is a teaching that is with us to this very day, only it's not pervaded by people uh, claiming a Jewish heritage or adherence to the Jewish law. Rather, it is by people claiming to be Christian, and by putting a a yoke of, of burdensome laws upon those who would call themselves Christian, saying, you must do these things in order to be saved. And so Paul is going to correct that, and he's going to do it by way of an example. He's going to use his own example, and then he's going to give a contrast. He's going to give a contrast between the righteousness of his own works and the righteousness of Christ. So let's go right to the scriptures and see what we can learn from Paul here today. He says there in Philippians 3, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision 
who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the powers of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we praise you this day and we thank you for these, your words of your servant, Paul. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding of these things today and help us to have the right mindset about our ministry, about our salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, help good works to have the right place in our lives and help us to have the right attitude about the good works that we do. And Lord, may our good works flow out of a love for Christ and ever-increasing flow to bring you glory and to bring a good name to the work that you're doing here on earth. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we have in Roman, in Philippians chapter 3, a very interesting thing that, that Paul is looking at here. He looks at this in the way of debits and credits. Debits and credits is a way that you can look at this. He counts certain things as losses and he counts other things as gain. And so we're going to use this idea like he's doing some kind of accounting. And we're going to see what it is that he files as debits and what it is he files as credits. If you had a checkbook register, you'd be going down and and the first column you come to is the debit column where you write out checks that have been made, withdrawals that have been made, and the like. And the next column after the description and, and all that would be the credits, the deposits made into your account. And then the last box would be the ongoing balance. And so we're going to see in the balance sheet today where these things land. How do they add or subtract to our standing with God? And this is an important thing that Paul is considering for us today. First thing we see that we come to is he speaks more about the debits. He speaks a great deal more about the debits than the credits because here what we're going to find is there's really just one credit. But first, the debits. Let's take a look at this. Uh, when we see in the verses here that we're dealing with, he his first debit that he comes to is his heritage. His heritage. He says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, what this means is that he came from a godly family because it was the law of the Israelites that their male children would be circumcised on the eighth day of their life. So they would be born, you count out eight days, that day you take him to the temple, you go through the ceremony to have him circumcised. If the temple's not available to you, you go to the local synagogue and, and to your local 
uh, representatives or your local head of the family. And this circumcision, uh, that this was done on the eighth day, uh, says that he was not a Jewish proselyte. That is, he wasn't a convert to Judaism. If you became a convert to Judaism and had never been circumcised, then at that point you would be circumcised. So he was born into the faith in a way, and he was born into the faith in a family that was observing the law. So when he says he was circumcised on the eighth day, that's quite a mouthful. Now he also says he's of the people of Israel. Now that may be implied by, well, let's see, his parents took him and got him circumcised, so obviously he's an Israelite, but not necessarily his parents or his grandparents could have been proselytes or anyone in his heritage have been proselytes to the Jewish faith, but he was part of the ethnic chosen people of God. In other words, he's the real deal. He didn't come along later. His family wasn't grafted in, so to speak. They are part of the natural vine. And these were the people of God entrusted with the word of God, the prophecies of God coming through them, finding fulfillment through them in their very lives. And so this indeed is a privileged position among the people of the earth to have this heritage so closely bound to the Old Testament scriptures and the revelation that God has done in the world through them. And so this is God revealing himself and dealing personally with these particular people of the earth that's an incredible heritage. That's a wonderful thing. And he, then he says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. So he's not just an Israelite. There were 12 tribes of Israelite, 13 if you're accounting technically, but there were 12 tribes of Israelites and he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin, the tribes of the Israelites, of course, are from the sons of Jacob. He had 12 sons and two of those sons were of his most beloved wife, Rachel. Yes, he had more than one wife, and mostly he was tricked into that. His true love was Rachel, and his true love, Rachel, bore to him Joseph and Benjamin, Benjamin being the youngest, and Rachel passing at the birth of Benjamin. And Judah loved Benjamin, therefore, especially. He And as you account uh, for it in the book of Genesis, he would not allow his son Benjamin to make the journey to Egypt for food because he'd already lost Joseph, so he thought. So Benjamin, to be of that tribe, was a special thing, but there was more to it than that. See, King Saul was from that tribe uh, for whom Paul was named. His name was originally Saul, and he began to use the name Paul because most of his ministry was to the Gentiles, so he took on a Gentile name. But he was named for the first king of Israel, a Benjaminite. Um, and this was the tribe that also stood with the tribe of Judah in the kingdom split after Solomon. And so the, the tribe is known for having the first king of Israel. The tribe is known for standing with the, the true king of Judah when the kingdom split happened in the book of uh, Kings and Chronicles. You can read about that. And they also stood with David during Absalom's rebellion. And so he has a tribe that has a good heritage. And so he mentions that too um, on his resume of being a good Jew. Now, why is Paul doing this? Well, Paul is doing this because the, the people that he's dealing with are Jews and they would no doubt come to him and they would be appealing to the fact that 
that, hey, we're, we're truly Jewish. Jesus was a Jew, you know, so this is really our faith that you're talking about here, and we can instruct you on that, and you've got to keep the law because God told us to keep the law and everything else. Paul understood the place of the law, but Paul is saying, okay, if we're going to play this game, if we're going to talk about who's really qualified to talk, to boast in the flesh, to boast in the laws that we do, I'm going to tell you about my resume. And so this is what he's doing. Now, the last thing he says here, um, or concerning his heritage is this, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. And when he says that, he's kind of adding all these things together, that he was, you know, in the right household, that he was, you know, a true Jew and not one added on later, that he was of uh, a tribe. He could name his tribe. He was of a good tribe. Brings his things together, say that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he had grown up in an observant household. He had mastered the language of the Hebrews and their scriptures. He had great knowledge of their scriptures, and he had those ways ingrained in him from birth. Now, I want you to notice these things are not bad in and of themselves. In fact, these are a tremendous blessing, and no doubt this is what really qualified Paul to be such an effective minister of the gospel because he knew the Jewish ways and he knew the scriptures so well that he could bring all of that knowledge to bear on the instruction it has concerning the person of Christ. Paul told Timothy to remember his upbringing. He was brought up by a godly mother and a godly grandmother in the ways of Judaism and they taught him the scriptures. So this is indeed a blessing. But Paul doesn't put it in the plus column. And he can't put it in a plus column because if you think about our heritage, our place of birth, the family we're born into, we, we don't choose our family. We don't choose our nation. We don't choose whether or not we're even raised properly. Those are things that are entirely out of our hands. If we have benefited from these things, we understand it's all glory and honor to God. But if we were to count these things as earning us credit with God, it's really actually a debit. It's not just a zero. It's a debit because it reveals that we really don't know how the gospel works. And maybe we don't know God at all. Because if we're going to say that our heritage, that our upbringing, that you know, the family we were born into, any of these things earn us credit with God, we don't know how he operates. We understand from the Bible that he's no respecter of persons, that he respects faith and faith alone. But we'll get to that in a moment. These things are debits if you consider them part of your spiritual resume, if you boast in them as putting you in a special position with God. The next thing he talks about, as you can see there in verse 5, uh, is as to the law he was a Pharisee, as to the law, a Pharisee. He was trained as a Pharisee. They had extensive laws. They had an extensive understanding of the scriptures, and they applied their laws with great precision and a, a legalistic priority in their lives. Elsewhere, he tells us that he studied under Gamaliel, which was a well-known rabbi. This would be like having a Harvard degree now, Pharisees took the word of God very seriously, but they truly missed the point. You find as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find the Pharisees constantly opposing Jesus and constantly missing the big picture 
of what the kingdom of God really was. But by bringing this up, what Paul is doing is he's narrowing down his elite group. He's building up his resume, as it were, to be overwhelming to say, if anyone's an expert in doing good things, it's me, because I was a Pharisee, and I took the law that seriously, made it a priority in my life, and lived it out to the best of my abilities before everyone. And not only does he have the right pedigree and the heritage, but he himself embraced the strictest of the Jewish sects. So years ago, with Christianity, someone might say this in such a way to say, I'm a Puritan or I'm a monk. More contemporarily, he might be saying, in fact, I'm a pastor or I'm a deacon. Of course, I'm, I'm not sure how helpful it would to be to say you're a deacon uh, might be a bit like saying you were a Pharisee. But anyway, uh, anyone familiar with Judaism at the time would know what a Pharisee was and would understand Paul's appeal to this. Paul was saying he took his religion very seriously. They tithed a tenth of everything perfectly. They observed every Sabbath. They observed every feast day. And on the three feast days when it was required, they would go to Jerusalem, wherever it was they lived. They would go to Jerusalem to attend that feast with the others. So as to the law, Paul says he was a Pharisee. Now look what he says here about zeal. He says, as to zeal, in verse 6 there, a persecutor of the church as to zeal a persecutor of the church. We meet Paul in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. And it says this there. It says, um, Then they cast him out of the city. This is speaking of Stephen. Stephen preached a sermon in Acts chapter 7 that, that makes your hair stand on end because he preaches this to the same crowd that crucified Jesus, to the leaders, to the hard-hearted of, of the Jews that were not following Christ, that were refusing the message. And he preaches this powerful and convicting message. And this is what they do. It says, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is where we first meet Paul. Then he was going by the name of Saul all the time. And we learn more about him in the beginning of the next chapter, in chapter 8 of Acts. Saul approved of his execution. So Saul stood there and approved when they were stoning Stephen. In other words, he was uh, involved in the murder of Stephen because this was an unjust stoning because Stephen was telling them, the truth. And it says there arose on that day a great persecution in the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But look what it says in verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison just for being Christians. This was Paul prior to his conversion. He appeals to this and he says, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. How seriously did Paul take the law and the religion? Because you have to understand the law of God given to them in the Old Testament were to say that those committing blasphemy should be stoned. 
and at the very least in prison because really they, they shouldn't have stoned Stephen. They're lucky they didn't get in a lot of trouble with Rome when they did that because they weren't supposed to carry out these capital punishments. So they're putting all these people claiming to be Christian in prison doing what they thought was right according to their law because they thought these people were blaspheming. But they weren't. They were telling the truth. They were true prophets, bringing them the truth of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 9, we get the account of Jesus appearing to Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul had actually gotten letters to go to the synagogues at Damascus, another city in another province, giving him permission to bind believers and bring them back to Jerusalem. In other words, he, he was going out of town after these people to bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. When Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus, he says, um, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Jesus acknowledged that Saul's zeal was so great he was persecuting Jesus Christ himself, that is, his church. So Paul appealed to his obedience to the law and his persecution in the book of Acts. And, and in his letter to the Galatians, he used this as evidence of the seriousness of him about Judaism to kind of strengthen his credibility, that he knew what he was talking about in preaching Jesus. Paul indeed knew what he was talking about. And this is what we see in his debits, works, righteousness. In other words, these were the things that he was doing as works because they were in accord with the law. They were considered righteous deeds. And among those, his heritage, his dedication to the law, his zeal for the religion, and his blameless righteousness. Let's talk about that in verse 6. We see that he was uh, blameless with regard to the law. It says, as uh, to righteousness under the law, blameless. He knew the law. He was a Pharisee. And he's implying that he obeyed the law <laughs> and accepted the additional laws above and beyond the word of God that the Pharisees had made up to, to go around the law, to kind of surround it, to make sure they didn't get close to breaking it. But did he obey it? He says he was blameless. Now, if Paul just said he was innocent, he, he may have been claiming that he had gotten away with it. If he simply said he was innocent, he may have said, I've never been convicted of breaking any of the law. This is not what he says. He says, I'm actually blameless. In other words, if we were to drag him before the Senate and the Senate committee was going to appoint him as a judge or something and they dove into his background, they, they weren't going to find anybody that could bring accusation against him. Nowadays, the way we run politics in our nation, surely they would find somebody at least willing to make up some accusation against him as is often the case. But no, this Paul, they could dive into his past and his challenge to them is I was blameless with the law. You could go into my past, you could interview everyone who knew me, and you'd find out this. With regards to the law, I was blameless. Well, Paul is saying, interestingly, is that there was no record or account or anyone of his breaking any of the rules. But I want to get to the point of what Paul is saying about these things. Look at verses 7 and 8. Whatever gain I had, so he's speaking of all these things, his 
his works righteousness, his heritage, his, the, his obedience to the law, his zeal, you know, all of these things. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, from a worldly perspective, we would put his heritage, his dedication to the law, his zeal for his religion in the plus column. But Paul's saying, no, I'm going to put that in the debit column. That's going to be a minus in my account. That's going to be a loss. And he goes on verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So Paul here is saying that these works weren't just a zero. They weren't just a failure to gain ground with God. These were actually a minus. They actually hurt his position with God spiritually. They were a debit on his spiritual bank account. These are all debits if they are a source of confidence. And so that's something we want to understand. These are all debits if they are the source of our confidence. Now you might say, well, I thought these were good things. You know, are these not good things? Is following the law not a good thing? Is tithing not a good thing? Zealously defending the faith, isn't that a good thing? Yes, those generally are good things. Unless we have our confidence in those things to make us righteous before God. In verses 3 and 4, Paul talks about confidence. He says, uh, We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That means in these works that he did. These would be what Paul calls works of the flesh. They're things that we do in the body, in the flesh, and things that, uh, that are accomplished in our, in our physical state here. But Paul says, I'm not going to put any confidence in those. We don't put confidence in those. Now, I want to make it clear, as we all know, good works are necessary in a life in Christ. But they come as a result of faith. The true works come as a result of faith. They are done out of love and gratitude toward our Savior. When they're performed as those things which gain us favor with God, then they are nothing. In fact, they're less than nothing. When we do good works thinking that we gain ground with God, that we gain favor with Him, that it's a plus uh, in our column, in the accounting of heaven, these are in fact nothing. They are less than nothing. Because if that's our attitude, if we have confidence that our works gain us ground with God, they are actually a stumbling block. Because if we think we're gaining ground with God through our works, then we're ignoring what really gains us ground with God, and that is the work of Jesus Christ. We are in fact putting the work of Jesus Christ, what he did for us upon the cross, we are putting that to shame by thinking what we do accomplishes it. In fact, that's work that only he could do. Uh, because we will have our confidence in the works of the flesh, we will ignore the real point, and the real point is knowing God. And that's when we turn to take a look at the credits of 
the Christian life and Christian accounting. And there's really one credit in this passage, and that credit is faith righteousness. That's in contrast to works righteousness. Faith righteousness is the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Look what it says there in verse 8. He says, uh, I count everything as loss um, for this sake. And then um, in verse 9 is where he says it. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but having uh, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. All these debits we could summarize as self-righteousness. And they're worth really less than nothing. They're a debit. He counts those as loss in comparison to what? To the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ in verse 8. In other words, as he says this is a surpassing worth of knowing Christ, he means knowing Christ is greater than all of those things combined. It surpasses those things in every way. He counts those as lost, therefore, in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He counts them as rubbish compared to being in Christ and having the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, I want to develop this just a little bit. I want to talk about the benefits of the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And he really does that right up front in the beginning here. He says, we are the circumcision. Now, in the book of Romans, he talks about this. And he says, you know, the only true circumcised people are the ones that are circumcised of heart. And he's actually borrowing from an Old Testament thing because even in the first five books of the Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy, they're getting ready to go into the promised land. Moses encourages the people, I want you to circumcise your hearts. You know, not just the external things, not just your body, but, but I want your heart to be cut. I want your heart to be right with God. And that's kind of an emphasis in the book of Deuteronomy. He keeps coming around to it as he reminds them of the laws and the way they were supposed to live when they got into the promised land. But Paul here says, no, no, we're the true circumcision because the ones coming around, the Judaizers, they were called the circumcision because they were Jews that had been circumcised and they were coming around and, and preaching Christ and they were called the circumcision. He says, no, 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 we're that. We worship by the Spirit of God. The, the true benefit of being truly in Christ and having the faith righteousness in Jesus Christ, this is worshiping by the Spirit of God. Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus told the woman, the Samaritan woman that he met at the well, he said, a time is coming and is now here when people will worship in spirit and in truth. We worship in the Spirit of God. That means according to His will, perfectly by the indwelling Spirit of God. And look what else it says there in that verse. It says, um, and we glory in Christ Jesus. We glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, what we brag about, what we want to make famous, is what Jesus Christ has done. And our confidence, therefore, is in Jesus Christ. And this is when we see very plainly here in this verse that glorying in Christ Jesus and putting confidence in the flesh is set up here in comparison or 
contrast, actually. You know, what's in opposition to putting confidence in the flesh? Glorying in Christ. That's putting our confidence in the work of Jesus Christ. Our works will always fall short. We will always find a better thing to do, a better way to do it. We will always find another sin in ourselves that we have to correct. We will always find another wrong inward attitude that needs addressed and changed. Having our confidence in our own works will always fall short. In fact, we'll not have confidence at all. And what will happen is we will be driven away from what is truly best. And what is truly best is glorying in Jesus Christ. When our confidence is in Christ, we truly begin to get the right perspective of our relationship with God. When we glory in the work of Christ, when we say, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed me white as snow. When we acknowledge the work of Christ as the basis for our relationship with God, then we're gaining ground. Then we have confidence. You may have heard in the book of Hebrews when it tells us to boldly approach the throne of grace. In other words, go to the Lord with everything in prayer, ask for whatever you will. We're told to do that and our boldness comes from the work that Jesus Christ did. Not because of ourselves we deserve to come before God, but because of the work of Christ, he has made a way, he has merited a way for us to come to God. And because it's based on his work, which is finished, we can come with boldness. Look at this again. We glory in Christ Jesus and don't put confidence in the flesh. We put our confidence in him. And how do we know that that's a good place to put confidence? Because when he finished the work on the cross and he said on the cross, it is finished, he was raised. He was raised from the dead. This is the ultimate testimony of the truth that all that he did was right and good and all that he taught was appropriate and true. And this is in fact what Paul says here in verses 8 and 10. Look what he says here, that he wants to know Christ in verse 8, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. But look how he says it in verse 10, uh, the righteousness that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's a powerful thing to know the power of his resurrection. Why? Because it is that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead that works in us. We'll look at that shortly in the book of Romans. But this is the ultimate prize of salvation, to know Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of salvation. As Jesus says in John 17, 3, he defines eternal life in this way. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Our gospel is a ministry of reconciliation. We don't regard people according to the flesh, Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The gospel ministry is the ministry of reconciliation, bringing people back together with God, 
correcting what was done in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and separated us all from God as our representative head. This is the ministry of reconciliation. The purpose of our salvation is that we may know God. That is the ultimate prize. That is the ultimate goal of our faith is to know God. That's a supreme thing. Our, our purpose in Christ is not to dress up our lives here, is not even to make the world a better place, though the gospel when spread does. But our goal and our purpose and the work of Christ that he did and he accomplished, he did so that we could know him, that we could be reconciled to God. This is at the very heart of what all of this is about. The whole scriptures, all of Christianity, it's about knowing God and coming into relationship with him. Not knowing about God, not simply knowing the scriptures, not being able to define him theologically, but knowing him relationally and knowing him forever. John Piper put it like this. He said, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's not about heaven. We don't even stay in heaven very long. There's going to be, when you read, and, and in the Bible, you can skip to the end. You can read the end of the story. The last few chapters of the book of Revelation, there's a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And that's where all believers are going to spend eternity in resurrection bodies. We're not just spirits flitting about in heaven. We're real people. and We're on a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. And the most important feature of this new Jerusalem, of this new heaven, new earth, where we dwell forever, the single most important thing, it's not the gates of pearl. It is not the streets of gold. It is not the mansions or the rooms that are there for us. It is the presence of God. The presence of God so profound that there doesn't need to be a sun for he is the light and the light is there. There'll be no more darkness. There'll be no more tears. We will be in his actual presence without sin and in perfect joy forever. It's about relationship with him. Now, any good accountant is going to look at these credits and debits. They're going to look at the, uh, they're going to look at these things and they're going to see, you know, what are my credits? Well, our credits, what goes in the plus column for us is the righteousness of God that depends on faith. And the benefits of that is worshiping in the spirit of God, glorying in Christ Jesus, knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. Now, if we want to get serious about, uh, about our accounting here, then what is the forecast? How do we look ahead you know, when you see the credits, you see the debits, then we ought to see where things are going. We ought to be able to predict where we are in the future. And this, in accounting terms, would be a forecast. And what is our forecast in Jesus Christ? Um, well, it's determined by this. Where is our confidence? Is our confidence in the works that we have done? Or are we like Paul and we count those as rubbish? We count those, in fact, as debits. And our confidence is in Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down a column and I want you to write in one column debits. And I want you to write all the good things that you've done. And then in the, in the next column, write your credits. And that would be the work of Jesus Christ. Anything you're doing to earn God's favor in the debit column, 
put the work of Jesus Christ in the credit column and compare the two. And let me ask you this question. In which one will you trust? In which one will you trust? See, we have to understand this because, you know, even our good works, according to the Bible, even our good works are as filthy rags before the Lord. And when he says that, he's he's talking about something unclean. He's talking about something really nasty. Our best works are as filthy rags because they're handed over to you with dirty hands. I could make you the most incredible and beautiful sandwich with all your favorite toppings on it, your favorite meat and your favorite cheese and gourmet bread and everything else. But if I hand that sandwich over to you, that beautiful work of art of a a meaty and beautiful sandwich, and I hand that to you and you see the dirt under my nails and you see the grime all over my hands, are you going to eat it? Because see, no matter what kind of works we offer to God in our flesh, we offer them to him with dirty hands. It's only once we have been cleansed of sin by the blood of Jesus Christ, do we have clean hands that can present to him works that mean anything. And so let's get it right. Let's not forsake the works. Let's not downplay our heritage because it can be a great blessing if you were raised in a godly family and you were brought up in church. Praise God for that. But let's not count those things as something that we're offering to him to gain credit. No, let's take the the cleansing work of Christ upon us through faith and let's then present to him works now with those then clean hands and those works will be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Which one will you trust? How does your balance sheet look? What is your forecast going forward? This is the contrast that Paul has put forth. He is contrasting works righteousness with faith righteousness. Confidence in the flesh versus confidence in Christ. Those things that are counted as loss versus those that are counted as gain. So then we talk about our forecast And our forecast is where we think things are going. Uh, The question is, what is our target? What is our actual goal? And the clear target laid out for us here by Paul is knowing Christ. Let's take a look at how he says this here in the scriptures. He he says in, uh, let me get us back there just momentarily. Go back through a few things here. Um, He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul saw in the Christian life a parallel to to dying in Christ, to being like Jesus Christ in his death. In other words, we die to our sin. We die to our old ways. We consider our old ways and ourself and our flesh dead. And then he says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is not saying here he's hoping to earn resurrection. He is saying he lives his life as if he had to. He lives his life as if he's reaching for resurrection. He lives his life with such a zeal for the truth of the gospel, with such works as to please God uh, after having been saved and after the work of Christ, that it's like he's striving forward for the resurrection. 
And we'll talk about this a great deal more next time. But we want to understand that is the ultimate target. That is the ultimate goal. And that is what we see coming forward, knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. And I'll invite you to take a good look at Romans chapter 8 on the issue because it will be very, very helpful. So what do we want to do with what we've learned today? Well, let's ask ourselves a question. In what am I placing my confidence? What am I striving for? And what are my faith goals? And how will I achieve them? That's really what we want to do. And those are the things we want to pray for. And that's why I want to end us today. I want to pray for these things with you. And we want to pray that these things become a reality in our lives, that we live as if reaching and striving for the resurrection of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you this day for bringing us together. We praise you for the ability to meet this way and, and for all that you can do with your word when it goes out. Lord, I pray that we would have our works in the right perspective, that we would seek first your kingdom, seek first the righteousness of Christ that comes by faith, and then and only then endeavor to work for you in such a way as will be pleasing to you and bring good reputation to your name and bring attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let our works have their place and may our works abound. Lord, I pray that no one understands this text as saying we don't need to do good works, but everyone understands that it's our confidence that's important. Where is our confidence? Lord, put our confidence in Christ. Let us see that he was displayed before the world, accomplishing your work, saying it is finished on the cross. Let us see that you raised him from the dead and that that testifies to the completion of this work, to the perfection of his work. And then let us put all our faith and trust in that. Lord, I pray this day that everyone listening to this will put their faith in Jesus Christ and that indeed you will be known and glorified through it. And then I pray, Lord, that you will continue to make yourself known more and more in your people and for your glory. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I pray you found that helpful today. And I want to invite you to contact us. We are available at whitesrun.org. That's whitesrun.org. And you can email us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. We receive those, I receive those emails personally, and I will address that and answer you personally and won't put you on a mailing list or annoy you with things that you don't want. But I will answer your questions. I'll answer any questions and even your accusations and criticisms. All those things would be welcomed as long as you want a constructive dialogue with us. So please contact us and pray about these things that you've learned today.